Hey everyone, and thanks for tuning in to the Modern Learners Podcast. If you're listening today, it's because you understand we have a real need for change in our schools and that we owe it to our learners to think differently about what school is and what it could be. If you're someone who is in a position of educational leadership where you aspire to be and you want to surround yourself with others doing the difficult but vital work of igniting school change, we invite you to join us in Modern Learners' newest community, Change Leaders. I'm Lynn Hilt, the Community Manager of CLC, and our space can help ensure you're using your professional learning time to the fullest. CLC offers carefully curated content to help you find signal among the noise, thought-provoking questions and discussions with inspiring community members who are serious about change, live events and access to the Modern Learners team, and a circle of critical friends who will help you kick off change efforts in your schools. Visit changeleaders.community and click subscribe to request your invitation to CLC. After doing so, we'll be in touch about how you can join in our movement, and we are so confident that you will find incredible value in making CLC your preferred learning destination that we offer a 30-day money-back guarantee. We look forward to continued learning with you. So is instruction necessary at all in schools? That's a pretty heady question that our friend Gary Steger asks in this, our latest Modern Learners podcast, and as you'll hear, he makes a pretty good case that it's probably not. Hey everyone, I'm Will Richardson, your host, and this is no doubt one of our most thought-provoking episodes as Gary dives deeply into the craft of teaching, how learning happens, appropriate pedagogies, and how change has happened over the last quarter century of technology and the web And it's one of those conversations that left me thinking hard about our work in schools and about my own work with school leaders, and I know it's going to make you think as well. Just a couple of quick reminders. Change School 5 starts in early June, so if you're listening to this in May 2018, please head on over to change.school and check out the details. Actually, if you're listening to this at any point, go to change.school and check out the details as we have more cohorts coming up. Some of the best work I've ever done. Really excited that we're gearing up again for number five, and we'd love to have you join us in whatever cohort is uh, right for you in terms of timing. And also, don't forget to dig around our newly refreshed modernlearners.com site where we're building a great resource for anyone who's truly interested in change at a high bar level. There's so much great thinking and practice out there right now, and we're trying to curate it to make sense of it, and we hope to see you there as well. And finally, as always, if you enjoy this conversation with Gary, or if you enjoy any of our podcasts, Why not tell your friends and colleagues and head on over to iTunes, give us a rating and a review. We're always interested in your feedback and we would love it if you helped to spread the word. So thanks again for listening, everyone. Really hope you enjoyed this conversation with Gary Steger and we'll see you at Modern Learners or elsewhere online. I know that uh, people have been waiting breathlessly this moment when we when we uh, announced that we would have our our good friend and and uh, mentor and um, soft-spoken leader educational leader Gary Steger with us today so Gary welcome to the Modern Learners podcast now you know Bruce and I and, and who was it someone else we were uh, at ISTE when we had a pretty wide-ranging conversation that I think turned into a podcast at some point so here we are about eight months later and I just wanted to catch up and see what you're doing so how are you, Gary, and where are you, and what's going on? Good. I'm in Los Angeles. I'm actually home for a couple of weeks now. I just got oh. back from Toronto, where I led some workshops for teachers. 
um, I'm between international trips. I was in Denmark and New York City recently, and I'll be back in Australia the end of May. Yeah, and uh, and so what is it, you know, Bruce and I were talking a little bit about where we should start this, this conversation. And I think what we'd like to start with is, so what's on your, what's on your brain these days in terms of the, the bigger conversation around education? What's the, what's the part of it that you're thinking the most about that's getting you most riled up or that you, that you think is changing in good ways or bad ways? I mean, what seems to be your area of focus these days? Well, I'm, I'm thinking a lot about the, 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 the nature of teaching and in, the, in all the discussions about transformation and revolution and change and evolution, whatever term you want to use, I think a lot of them are looking at the problem through the wrong end of the mic, the, through the wrong end of the telescope. Um, without being negative towards teachers, even though this statement's going to sound like that, um, I think the problem is that there aren't a lot of folks who know how to teach. And that's through no fault of their own. But I trace it back to around the mid-1980s, around the time of Nation at Risk, and legislatures all over the world removed the art of teaching from teacher preparation, and all they left was curriculum, you know, curriculum delivering animal control. And when I studied to be a primary school teacher, we had to learn how to teach math and science and social studies and bake cookies and make puppets and sing songs. You actually had to learn how to play the piano a little bit to be an elementary school teacher in New Jersey. Um, and we learned about project-based learning and classroom centers and all the things that, that are now kind of hot new topics. But that was all just sort of, the, sort of the baseline expectations for what teaching was. And I, I find that there's just a generation of teachers who don't know any of that. And it's, through, like I said, it's through no fault of their own. And you're quite eager when presented with the opportunities to learn about learning and teaching in that, in that fashion in a progressive tradition that, that they're willing to do so. And that they can often make the switch pretty, pretty quickly. Um, but the, there seems to be an underwhelming lack of interest in, in addressing that situation. I know that in our workshops, like what, what we did just yesterday and the day before in Toronto, you know, in a matter of an hour and a half, two hours without any direct instruction, teachers were able to engage in really complex engineering tasks with computer science involved and coding and problem solving and physics and electronics and, and, and express creative ideas um, in, in, in a really fabulous fashion that was without endless rubrics and teacher interruption and an operatic performance by an instructor at the front of the room. So the more work that I do, the more optimistic I am about the potential for teachers to create productive context for learning, and the more convinced I am of the shortcomings of instruction. Um, and, and, and so that's, I'll, I'll stop there, and there's one other idea that I've been thinking a lot about. So just for a second, because you know I concur 100% with your comments, um, I went into teaching um, a bit later and, and, and about went through the same sort of processes as you do. But you, you jumped then from teachers sort of making puppets and, and playing piano through to some very complex ideas. So how do we bridge that gap? I mean, you know, what's the process that you're, you're working with teachers in doing this and how can that scale? Well, the, the question of scale is problematic. I mean, at, when, whenever anyone talks about issues of scale, it's what scale are you talking about? You know, Bruce, you and I know that, you know, there's still questions about one-to-one -one computing and 
And we know the teachers whose lives were irrevocably changed, improved. They became school administrators all over the world. They started companies. They got PhDs. They taught better. They, they liked their jobs more. So making the world a better place for one kid is, is sufficient for me. But we, rec- we need to recognize that we stand on the shoulders of giants. There's lots of books behind me that explain how to do these things. And, y- and yet, I think the greatest problem facing education is we need to find a cure for amnesia. We need to help teachers understand the Piagetian idea that knowledge is a consequence of experience, that there's no substitute for experience. There's a growing body of research out of places like Stanford that's demonstrating that if kids have an experience, work on a project prior to the lecture, reading the chapter in the book, watching the video, they have deeper understanding if the order is reversed. A lot of my work, both with teachers and kids, is suggesting to me that the, that the instruction might not be necessary at all, that, that a good project can replace a great deal of breathless instruction. Um, and one of the ideas that I've been really thinking about lately is the notion of, a, of, of obsession. Um, I know that word has a pathological connotation in the English language, but I haven't found a better one yet. I think that really deep, meaningful learning is often accompanied by obsession. Mm. And that could be someone spending their entire life trying to make a B flat sound better on the trumpet, or it could be a six-year-old who wants to know every species of dinosaur, and they're obsessed with that for six or seven weeks. Um, but I think the conditions for that kind of optimum learning are, are the same regardless of, of its period, regardless of its duration. And, and so I'm intrigued by the question of, how can we create experiences, contexts in classrooms um, where kids can discover things that they didn't yet know they love um, and, and be able to, to really fall in love and express that love for a particular skill or domain of knowledge? Is, is that possible with a curriculum, do you think? Well, you know, curriculum is, is so arbitrary um, yeah, and so arrogant, this uh-huh. notion that someone somewhere has has decided what you need to know when you need to know it, it probably um, makes what I just described difficult, if not impossible. But there's this other problem of curriculum that I've recently encountered, which is the big curriculum. You know, so we're going to teach kids coding from K to 12 or P to 12. Well, great. Um, There's no greater champion of kids learning how to program computers than I am. I, I think that it gives kids agency over an increasingly complex and technologically sophisticated world. I think every kid should learn how to program and they should do it across the curriculum. But when you make a K-12 goal for that, first of all, you assume that you know what an 11th grader would be able to do with coding if they had spent 10 years doing it prior to that. And I don't have a crystal ball. I have no freaking idea. So when you create a curriculum, you invariably create assessment to, a, to accompany that. And, and as a result, you're creating a curriculum with assessment that has no actual benchmarks. It's not rooted in any actual experience. So what you do instead is you make arbitrary decisions and you overly focus on vocabulary. So you see computer science curricula for first graders that say kids will identify an algorithm and you teach if in second grade and then in third grade. <laughs> and, and, what you, and, and, and sometimes I've seen, you know, I've seen in national curriculum documents in 11th grade, kids will learn to save a file. And I like, to, I like to remark that if you're in 11th grade and you haven't saved a file yet, then you've probably never done anything that matters to you. Um, but, the spreading, but the spreading coding out across 12 years or 10 years or five years, 
um, does two things that people don't talk about, two unintended consequences. And one of the problems that I think we often have in education is we don't think about the consequences of our actions that are our policy statements mm-hmm. and our decisions. So, so one is, if you say something has 12 years, then we can always make it manana. We can always get to it next year. So there's no sense of urgency. And the second problem when it comes to a skill like computer programming, the kids never develop enough fluency to be able to use it to solve real problems. Mm-hmm. So that if, if you've spread this, this body of ideas and experiences out across too much time and space, um, you make it impossible for the kids to ever become good at it. And that's kind of a paradox that, that on its face, it seems like, well, we're going to commit to this over 12 years. More must be better. But I'm not so sure when it comes to developing skills like programming computers that the approach I experienced in 1975 in Wayne, New Jersey, wasn't better than much of what we're doing today, which was every seventh grader took a nine-week programming class. And you made sure that for five days a week, for 45 days or something, every kid had a, had a similar experience that then they could either focus on or, or move away from, because I'm not a big fan of of coercion in any form. Um, I think curriculum is the most dangerous idea in education. And it's not a matter of bad curriculum or good curriculum. It's a matter of me having the audacity to suggest what you should teach and know on a particular date. So, but, but let's get to the heart of that because, you know, Will and I can see the logic of where you're going with this and an awful lot of people who are watching us and listening to us um, would support your thinking. But there are also, as you know, an awful lot of people who, who shriek at the lack of control and authority and, and the, the, they're going to lose in the classroom. And they start thinking of the randomness of the experience for kids. And for some reason, they, they, they aren't able to visualise or conceptualise where you're going with it. How, does, how do we make sense to those people who yearn for that control? They need different experiences. This comes back to this Piagetian idea, again, that, that learning, teaching, curriculum development, even assessment, then the notion that knowledge is a consequence of experience is paramount. You know, I had an experience recently where I visited a school and they wanted me to see all the fabulous things the school was doing. And there were really lovely teachers who, were, who loved their kids and loved their school and they were committed to their work. And they had a lot of technology and a lot of support. And I saw endless missed opportunities. So at the simplest level, having a critical friend would be nice to be able to say, hey, why don't you tweak this a little bit? Hey, what you doing? Why don't you consider it another way? But there was one unit in particular, actually two, two, two anecdotes worth sharing. One, one was seventh graders had a pneumatic unit. Okay, they're learning pneumatics. I don't know why. It wasn't connected to anything else, but okay, they're learning pneumatics. So tell me about the pneumatics unit. Well, we were using design thinking. So the kids were identifying the problem and they were interviewing potential customers and they were sketching and drawing plans for their pneumatic machine that would address that problem. And then the teachers passed out kits and the kids followed instructions to build a pneumatic machine. So I'm already not clear what all of the preliminary stuff was for. The, the interviewing the customer and identifying a problem at a pain point and drawing sketches and plans and such. And the kids built the machines and they were pretty good. And, and then I said to the kids, thanks a lot, kids. Um, that's terrific. If you don't mind, I'd like to beat up on your teachers for a moment. Because what I left out was what followed the building of the machines was they had to make a brochure because you always have to make a brochure. 
the brochure is, is, is the number one priority on any kind of project-based learning. Now, why do the kids need to make a brochure? Not because it adds any actual value, but because the teacher isn't paying enough attention to the learning of their kids or is too insecure in being able to justify the work of the kids to a superior who wants to know what did they learn. And when I was taught to be a teacher, when we had to learn how to play the piano and make puppets, um, we also were taught explicitly how to write, what to write in your plan book if you wanted to play Scrabble for three months, of how you could take any activity and find 50 or 60 standards you were satisfying. And, and teachers don't know how to do that anymore. So as a result, as we remove agency from teachers, they become less thoughtful in their practice because they just have a, have a faith-based relationship with the textbook. And as they become less thoughtful in their practice, the results suffer. So we remove more agency from them and they become less thoughtful and the results suffer. And it's this downward spiral. So I said to the teachers, um, look, if the brochure adds value, make a brochure. But I've been in a lot of presentations where the kids show their brochure and then have to tell me how much their imaginary machine would cost. And they giggle through it because they know what a fake activity this is. And, and, what, and, and then I asked the teachers, what's the greatest, scarcest, most scarce resource in schools? And they all said in unison, time. And if time is the scarcest resource, then we should be precious with it. We shouldn't waste it on make work activities. That if the teachers got to know the thinking of their kids, if they embrace the idea of the, the educators of Reggio Emilia, that the highest role of a teacher is to be a researcher, to understand the thinking of each kid, to make private thinking public, invisible thinking visible, then, then they would know what the kids were learning. And if God forbid anyone ever asked them to tell them what the kids were learning, they'd have the ability to do so. The, the other quick anecdote is met a group of kids, fifth or sixth graders who won a contest programming an app. Well, why do we make kids program apps? Because we think they'll become billionaires. But okay, put that aside for a minute. The kids made an okay app. The programming was pretty good. And then I asked the kids two questions. I asked, what else have you made? And they stared blankly at me. And then I asked, and what else would you like to make? Or what would you like to make next? And in unison, these five or six girls turned to look to their teacher for an answer. And that kind of broke my heart and reminded me of, of how inauthentic the task was how little ownership and appropriation they had of, of what they had done, how, how tenuous what they learned probably was, because the best projects are generative. That as you experience some success, if you have a supportive culture and, and appropriate materials and sufficient time, you immediately have other ideas for things you want to do. You want to test a larger hypothesis. You want to decorate. You want to make it better. You want to ask a deeper question. You want to take that idea and, and start a new project with it. So in the case of the pneumatics, as well as the app inventing, the kids didn't have sufficient ownership to be able to take what was taught to them and, and use it in any way that was transferable or, or personally relevant or useful or meaningful. And the last, last thing about that, uh, and then, I, then it occurred to me that with the pneumatic unit, for all the planning and the rubrics and the steps and the, and the brochure, they could have reduced that entire unit to four scraps of paper and a hat that said, push something, pull something, lift something, throw something. And if you had put the materials out and kids had randomly chosen one of those four scraps of paper, they would have far exceeded the expectations of the way that the curriculum was developed. This has been a pretty shallow conversation for the last 15 minutes, Gary. Not, not a lot of new ground that we've been covering or you know, making, <laughs> making anybody think or anything, but 
it seems like what you're saying is that that you know a teacher's role then should be to create the conditions for obsession to happen but that teachers really don't know how to do that and that it's more than simply having leadership say you do what you want, right? Give them- yeah, It's more than genius hour. Giving teachers, no, but you talk about all the agency that's being taken away from teachers. Right, it's, right. it's more than simply leaders saying you have the agency. Because I've, I've talked to a lot of teachers that have said, well, you know, we, we have a lot of license. We can do the things that we want to do. Yet yeah. they don't really rise to the types of things that you're talking about. So what is it simply beyond permission that needs to exist in order for those conditions for obsession to be created for kids to really do powerful things. I think a lot of this involves love, love of yourself, love of your students, love of some, some hobby or field of endeavor or intellectual domain. That's one of the reasons why I love hanging out with jazz musicians. I was at the Kennedy Center last week for the NEA Jazz Masters Awards and you go backstage afterwards and you see three generations of musicians who love each other. And even if they've never met before and they have, they have a shared love for, for this cultural phenomena that they've, they've lovingly committed their lives to. So, so that's part of it. And I think relate, a related issue is that not, not enough adults have experience with what greatness looks like, feels like, tastes like, um, sounds like, that whether it's, it's proximity to people who are good at what they do. Teachers who are great at what they do are largely transparent about their practice so that the kids are let in on the decisions that are being made to create a more productive context for learning, to, to engage more kids, to create the conditions for obsession. But very few teachers and adults, for that matter, in our culture have experience with what our greatness looks like. I, I think a lot about there was a chancellor of the New York City schools for about two minutes, I don't know, 25 years ago named Harold Levy, who was a Wall Street guy, yeah. and he got fired by Giuliani. Um, mm. But he was notorious for putting like opera tickets in board members' mailboxes and having speakers on cosmology come in and, and talk to school principals. There was a, right before he got sacked, he, he took all the regional superintendents by bus to Carnegie Hall. And Isaac Stern handed him each a, a violin and said, welcome to violin lessons. And, and he was trying to convey to, to these, these educators, these administrators, that there's something bigger than what they do. And I, I learned from my, my musician friends a long time ago that great artists reflect the milieu in which they live. They read the newspaper, they go to the movies, they, they hang out with friends, they go to art openings. Um, they're interesting people typically and that's why their art is so good and maybe the reason why you know will we and bruce you we can all walk into classrooms still or pd sessions in particular and have someone say what's google or you know i've never heard of amazon before is sort of indicative of the fact that teachers for some reason have this sort of monastic lifestyle that's that's depriving them of understanding all of the opportunities and um, riches of the the milieu in which they live. You know, I, I often say, you know, it's a cheap throwaway line, but you know, you can't possibly teach 21st century learners if you haven't learned anything this century. So, 
this this obviously leaves an opening for I think one of the most ambitious and daring initiatives that I think have been um, launched across the education sector in the last decade, and that's the institutes that you run uh, in Manchester each July, constructing modern knowledge. Now, you know that is your effort, as far as I can see. That's that's your intent to try and address this issue, not at scale of tens of thousands, but pulling a hundred little few more hundred couple of hundred teachers together and exposing them to these experiences that you're talking about both from the point of view of themselves as learners and also exposing them to to the greatness that you're talking about and i think sometimes when i've looked at your website constructing modern knowledge um and looked at your guests that you've got there and i know this year you've got i mean how could you possibly not go when you've got someone like carla rinaldi from reggio emilio it just seems to me to be a given that you'd want to hear what she has to say. But also you, you've always had, you know, jazz musicians and, and as you said, people who have this commitment to greatness, who, who exude this obsession you're talking about to help teachers see that modelled and understand the sorts of things you're talking about. Is that, a, is that a reasonable representation of what's motivated you to put so much time and energy into driving, constructing modern knowledge? Well, thanks for that, Bruce. Uh, yeah, it is my life's work. And, and I think it's all of the things we've, we've talked about. We've had participants who have, who have said things like, in 48 hours, Gary and his team put together a school that none of us could ever dream of before. We asked teachers to take off their teacher hat, put on their learner hat, and be selfish with the experience. And year after year after year, we changed teachers' lives. They tell us that in big and small ways. And the, the, the the teachers get to experience what it's like to learn with modern materials and a supportive culture with, with the luxury of time to work four hours uninterrupted on personally meaningful projects and to spend time with their heroes and sheroes, even if they've never met the people before. So I'll, I'll get to the origins of CMK in a minute, but um, our guest speakers are limited. We never have more than three or four because we want the emphasis of the experience to be on doing. So to the people who email and ask if it will be live streamed, the answer is always no, because <laughs> um, the stream would be pretty boring if we, well, first of all, we'd have to point it at 60 different projects going on. Um, but, we, but our goal is always for people to be able to say, I spent time with someone rather than I heard <clears throat> someone. And I've had these amazing experiences where, you know, a teacher looks over their shoulder and realizes that Jonathan Kozel is watching them work, or Alfie Cohen's talking about their work, or Demi Deborah Meyer or Lillian Katz or Carlo Rinaldi. And, and then there are these moments that I often find out about two, three years later that, that actually make me quite emotional and, and make the work worthwhile. Um, last year, we got on the buses in Boston around 11 p.m. We go to the MIT Media Lab every year for a reception, and then people have a few hours to spend around Boston. And I was cheerleading a little bit because people had been working all day, and then they got on a bus, and they went to Boston, and they were to, talking with Neil Gershenfeld, who's one of the pioneers of everything in technology the last quarter century, and it's kind of a heady day. And, and I said, you know, everyone have a good time. What'd you do tonight? And one teacher who was there for the second year said to me, oh, we went for soup dumplings to that joint I took Carlo Rinaldi to last year. <laughs> and, and I know what it meant for me to meet my heroes and I was kind of precocious and I spent more money than I ever earned to be able to go to Australia or to, to hang out with Seymour Papert or Mr. Rogers or Jonathan Kozel or 
Herb Cole, or, you know, and I've been to Reggio Emilia half a dozen times on my own, at my own expense. Um, but most teachers don't have that luxury and creating that kind of context for them really matters. And we have teachers year after year after year who create things that take our breath away that when we're unpacking the boxes, last year we had 60 cases of materials for people to work with and a library of five or 600 books and craft supplies and toys and, and um, 3d printers and every kind of microcontroller imaginable. We're unpacking the boxes and we're trying to figure out where to put stuff. And I remember this conversation where someone said, where do we put the feather? The feather was some bit of electronics that I saw somewhere that I thought might be interesting to someone. And, and I said, I don't even know what it does. And then I brought my team in and none of them knew what it did. And we guessed somewhere to put it that it would be proximate to other things that might be like it. And, 10 minutes into people working on projects, someone was using the feather. And, and so one year, one of our faculty members got frustrated and he said, why don't we just have one kind of Arduino? If we just had one microcontroller, this would be so much easier to teach. And I said, because if we had just one microcontroller, then this would be an Arduino workshop. This isn't an Arduino workshop. This is trying to create a learning environment where anything is possible, where anything anyone could possibly need is within arm's reach. And our faculty is made up of people like Cynthia Solomon, who invented Logo, and Brian Silverman, who's programmed every version of a programming language for kids over the last 40 years, and James Deck, and Josh Berker, and Brian C. Smith, and, and Sylvia Martinez, people, and Tracy Redzidis. People are at the forefront of using this stuff with kids. Um, so we, we're trying to do all of it to try to create an environment that's constructive, collaborative, co creative, collegial, non-coercive. Um, go to lunch, make a friend, come back when you're done. Um, and, and, and playful where teachers experience what it's like to learn with these materials and an environment that puts their needs and interests and passions and perhaps even latent talent ahead of some arbitrary list of stuff like a curriculum might be. So Gary, one of the things that, uh, um, I use of yours. This is a short little video from a workshop you did with some teachers in Mexico. I think it was oh, last yeah, yeah. year. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's it's just this cute video, and people love it. They're they're making um, they're making a bird that sings and dances. You, you were typically terse in your instructions. Just gave them a, you know a couple of requests, and then threw out some stuff for them to work with. But um, and it's a great little video, and it's you can tell that they were a, a, a bit obsessed, I think, in as much as they could obsessed in the couple of hours that they had. But what I what I always point about the video, point out about that video is that you used a couple hashtags to describe the work, and one of them was expect more, and the other was teachers are competent. Um, I wish you could talk a little bit about that second one because I, I think it's it's just I'm glad someone's paying attention to my wise ass house. <laughs> <laughs> when I do my best work um, and I don't remember any of it so that's yeah, but, but talk a little bit about that you know what what it is that it, that kind of motivates you to to add a hashtag that says teachers are competent and I'm almost hearing like a swear word after that right like you're trying to say to people you know let's let's not let's not lower our expectations of what's possible with the adults in the room so just just yeah talk a bit about that. so a couple things. There, there was, there were, you know, in just that one instance in Guadalajara, this was a school that was a year old that still doesn't have electricity or internet access. <laughs> I mean, 
they're not in the woods somewhere. They're not in the bush. There's like, you know, there's a, there's a McDonald's next to them. But their plot of land, given the you know, proclivities of Mexico, haven't gotten electricity or, or but these teachers were willing to have a go they brought me down they you know they've read books they can find reggio Emilia on a map they know what the approach is about um so and there was one older teacher most of the teachers were young there was one teacher probably in her 50s who decided to do the hardest thing when we had this sort of poo-poo platter of material spread out for them and she took an arduino kit even though i often suggest they start with something else and and she was using her phone to provide internet access so they could watch the tutorials on their phone and they could download drivers and such to their computer. Um, and they were having some success. But the part that really um, thrilled me was her son is a professional engineer and she was not only reaching out to him at work to get help with the, what they were working on, but she was reporting how, in, how amazed he was that his mother was, was doing engineering. <laughs> was working with microcontrollers and was programming in C. Um, you talk about terse. I, I say a good prompt is worth a thousand words. Mm. The prompt for that activity is make a bird singing and dancing is appreciated. Right. <laughs> and then in 90 minutes to two hours with the hummingbird robotics kit, which is a microcontroller with motors, light sensors, servos in now dozens of workshops all over the world, teachers can make a bird. And, and if they were kicking off boxes for the Department of Education, there would be innumerable skills that that they were um, that they were addressing and standards that they were over overachieving. Um, and there's also a great deal of joy in what they're doing. Yeah. Um, and one of the one of the other things that I've learned is that the feathers give us courage. <laughs> that if I brought that box of electronics out and said. I'm going to teach you about the servo and then we're going to do bullying and then we're going to learn about, um, no one would ever make anything. But when I, when I give them a prompt, everyone knows what a bird is. They have recycled materials and drink containers and cups and cardboard and tape and such. They, they can get started immediately because they can bring their experience to it. And as they have more success, it's generative. As I mentioned earlier, if, it, if they're unsuccessful, they modulate their expectations um, or change the problem or engage in some debugging processes. Um, but the feathers give us courage because the, if I bring a kilo of feathers with me, the feathers make that pile of, of hard to use electronics, that scary stuff, it makes it accessible because they, th there's the potential for a bird in it. And, and then the challenge is if you have to make it more curricular-y, you know, can we do birds of Guadalajara or birds facing extinction or birds reciting Shakespeare or Chaucer or whatever you would want to do to be able to tick more boxes off the curriculum. Um, but, but in countless cases, that's 100% successful. And it, by 100% successful, it means that everyone's able to bring their experience, their expertise to the experience without there being one right answer. One of the problems with you showing it all over the world and there being a video of it on the web is people now Google make a bird with hummingbird. <laughs> and, and, and so some people start the workshop with, I got to find one. And, and so, so, you know, that's okay. I've got other ideas. And so I've okay. stopped doing birds for a while. So, but, um, just, but just really fast. So, so when you say teachers are competent, yeah. Is that a response to people? Do, do you think that's a response? Oh, sure, sure, sure. People, yeah, sure, sure. So don't we, think teachers are confident? I mean, because yeah, so we, we think, we hear that and we go, well, my teachers probably couldn't do that. 
or, or you know, is it just like a like a kick in the butt and saying, look, yeah, teachers can do really interesting things if you give them the opportunity. Absolutely. And two things. One is what I do at Constructing Modern Knowledge, what I do in a day long workshop with teachers is exactly the same thing I do with preschoolers or sixth graders or 10th graders anywhere in the world. Look, I'm, I'm the schlub who walks into schools where they say, oh, we, we want you to teach programming to the first and second graders. When? Now? How many? 60? For how long? Two hours. I did that recently. <laughs> and demonstrated what my friend Debbie Meyer likes to say, which is that no one has a longer attention span than a little kid. Um, I had first and second graders who I never met before programming for two straight hours. Now, I don't know all those hand gestures and claps to make kids look up front and, and I, I, I'm, I'm bad at the semaphores. I never learned that stuff. But, you, weren't, you weren't giving good behavior badges and, and things no, about bad behavior? Like. No, and I didn't have that Homeland Security color chart on the front of the You know, the terrorism warning chart. Um, I, I never worry about classroom management because I never go into a classroom feeling like I have to manage it. Nor do I when we have 200 people at Constructing Modern Knowledge. You know, I, you know again, to the scale question, I am so confident in the power of constructionism and the kinds of conditions we create for teachers to learn at Constructing Modern Knowledge that it would work with 10,000 people. The great, the great sorrow in my life is that our competition for what I believe is the richest, deepest, most life-affirming, life-changing professional learning experience that any educator has ever had anywhere is teachers going to Google training over the summer. As, as if there's anyone out of diapers incapable of using the Google. So that's, that, you know, much of the PD that we see is, is, expects nothing of teachers. They actually use terms like teacher proof. And, and a lot of it, at its best, at, at, that it, it's, it's at its apex, it seems to me to be stuff that I was taught the first night of teacher school. You know, I wonder when we're going to get to the second night of teacher school. You know, CMK was born out of a frustration, a growing concern 20 years ago that the ed tech community wasn't reflecting what we knew about learning and that my heroes in the progressive education community were suspicious of modernity. And Seymour Papert and I had numerous conversations about, hey, Seymour, can't you just get these guys in a room with us so we can show them that what we're talking about using computers for isn't dystopian or test preparation that it's designed to amplify the potential of each learner. It's allowed, it's allowing kids to explore domains of knowledge and, and, and experience complexity that was inaccessible just a couple of years ago. And sadly Seymour was never able to pull it off, but without a penny of institutional support an exhibit hall vendors, sponsors, um, my friends and I have been able to do this now for 11 years. And, and it's based on this notion that, you, you can't believe, be, believe that children are competent if you behave as if their teachers are incompetent. Um, and, you know, go back to what the point Bruce said earlier about having speakers who are great at what they do. I've had tacitly in my head three categories of speakers that we have at CMK every year. Um, my partner for the last 25 years, Sylvie Martinez, recently said to me, you've never told me this. Um, <laughs> and, and the three categories are a great progressive educator, Deborah Meyer, Alfie Cohn, Lillian Katz, Carlo Rinaldi, who for my money is the smartest, wisest living educator. Um, folks of that ilk, 
Then we always have someone who's done interesting things with technology. Stephen Wolf from Mitchell Resnick. Um, uh, this year, Eric Rosenbaum, GK, who invented circus stickers. Eric Rosenbaum, who invented the Makey Makey. Um, and, and then we have a third category, which is people who are exceptional at what they do. And what they do wasn't something your guidance counselors told them was an option. So that's where we've had 88-year-old jazz musicians playing with 22-year-old jazz musicians, where we've had astrophysicists and historians and treehouse designers. And this year we have Poli DeMeo, who's the carpenter on Extreme Home Makeover, um, so that the teachers can experience greatness, the power of technology to, to amplify human potential, and what it means to teach and learn in a way that matters for, for kids and, and, and adults. So Gary, there's no question CMK is one of your obsessions. And, and, and I, Will and I continually um, share, you know, our feelings about the work that comes out of that and celebrate what you've been able to achieve through that. But there are a couple of things I want to say about it. So the first thing is you did take this on your own and, and we can both speak personally to what you've done to make this happen. A lot of people, I think, look at, CMK and constructing modern knowledge and, and they wonder, well, you know, as you said, who's underwriting this? I, I've seen you cart, you know, hundreds of boxes of goods so that people can have these experiences that you're talking about because you can't artificially create them. You've got to actually have the stuff and you've spent the money and the time and the, and the freight bills and everything to make that happen. But there's a couple of comments I want to make about what you do. The first thing is in this discussion here today, I have heard you say, I have learned, I have learned, I have learned. And a lot of people say to me, oh, you know, Gary's good, but he's got a lot of opinions, you know. I'm saying, hang on, the guy's one of the best learners I've ever met in my life. And you do that all the time. And people take it for granted that here's a guy who, you know, obviously is, I think, one of the world's leading progressive educators and, and thinkers around this space but you're still learning and you're modeling that you're still learning and you're open about that. And the second piece is when you talk about these ideas that we've been discussing through this whole, this, this whole um, podcast, you, you continually pushing people at the edges and you, you're talking about these ideas of kids, you know, 200 kids in a room and how do you make this happen? There's no instruction, et cetera, et cetera. And everyone goes, that's off with the fairies. That's fantasy. That never, I'm going, hang on, you walk the talk. And, and you're one of the, I think, rare people who not only talks about these things, but makes them happen. You don't get up and just prance around the world talking off a stage. You get down and dirty and you work with teachers and you work with kids and you work with policymakers. And at CMK, you bring a lot of that together and you give an intense experience over those four days of that actually happening. And so, you know, this, this is, I think, the extraordinary um, achievement that you've done with CMK is you, you, you give everyone an opportunity to come together and have these experiences that you're talking about and seeing the reality of it and getting a chance to work with these people that you've mentioned and to work with you. And I think that people overlook that, mate. And I think it's really, really important that people understand that this isn't some theoretical idea that you've dreamed up in the middle of your PhD. This is 30 years worth of work and before that you bring to come to make happen. As you said, as a result of those discussions you had with Seymour, that 
you realise that if you weren't able to create this time where people could come together and have these experiences, then people would forever be saying to you, oh, that's all theoretical and who can ever do that? But you make it happen through CMK. And I'll finish by saying, you may or may not have seen, but on Facebook we've got some commentary and feedback from people and at least two or three people have taken the time to say CMK was life-changing for me. And I think no, that's, I that's amazing. No, th thank you for that. I mean, I, I don't know what the alternative is. Um, you know, <laughs> I often say we're not in linoleum sales. This is about kids. Um, and, and what we do matters. And, you know, Jonathan Kozel likes to say, you're only seven once. We need, we need to have some urgency about this. Um, you know, there's another audience for CMK that's, that's been kind of on the down low, which is these progressive educators who, who I bring to participate. When, when Deborah Meyer sees what teachers can do with computers in the kind of spirit of what all of us have been about and what's, what I learned with Seymour Papert over 20 years and says, this is wholly consistent with my life's work, or Alfie Cohn signs his kid up for a scratch workshop, um, or Carlo Rinaldi, who is you know, the finest early childhood educator in the world, and a lot of early childhood educators are hysterical about modernity and 45 minutes into CMK turns to me and says, this is a miracle. Um, that, that's, another, that's another constituent group that, that's incredibly important because those folks have a big platform um, and, and are well-respected and regarded. And they speak to educators that I don't, have, I don't have access to and educators who don't have access to a workshop that I might be leading somewhere. Um, so that's, that's been really important as well. That, as I often say to teachers, if you're an educator, you're educating all of the time and everyone. The kids you're lucky enough to serve in your classroom, your colleagues, your superiors, the guy on the bus next to you, the idiot at the bar, the next stool over. Um, you have a responsibility to share what you know with others to help them um, join you in making the world a better place for kids. So that's why I do all that I do. And um, like I said, I would do anything for more educators to experience what we're able to create in July. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. There's, there's no reason it should exist. We've managed to do it for 11 years. Um, and frankly, don't know how much longer we can continue to do it. Um, I mean, everything I do in my life will be in that spirit. Um, and everything I do with kids is shaped by what I learned from that experience and what I learned working in a prison for teenagers with Seymour Papper or working with you and my colleagues in Australia in the early one-to-one -one days. I recently had the experience where I walked into a second grade teacher's classroom in Eltham, Australia, and she shrieked and said, I can't believe you're in my classroom. And she was someone I taught when she was in year nine. And two hours later, I taught her year seven daughter. Um, and, and I was, I was actually more, um, emotional positively emotional about that experience than i was feeling old um although it's kind of nuts that i've actually been working in places like australia old. long enough to be to be on the third generation or something um so you know like i said i don't i don't know the alternative i think i think those of us who know better need to do better and education is is really good at at the at rhetoric and blah blah and and you know doing the 
It's not the learning, it's the teaching. It's not the shoe tying, it's the pasta making. It's not the, you know, that kind of, that kind of stuff where we're great at that. Um, I go to lots of conferences about ideas where no ideas are introduced. Um, and, and sometimes we need, we need to just do something differently. And constructing modern knowledge is an opportunity to create an environment that shows teachers through their own ex- direct experience that things need not be as they seem and that the, the future of education could be a lot brighter, um, both for the kids that they're lucky enough to serve, but also more fun for them as, as educators themselves. So Gary, as we kind of wind this up, um, you know, you were talking about sharing and one of the things I've always appreciated about you is uh, um, your willingness to share books that you've read. In fact, um, there have been a couple of occasions where I've come home and there've been a package on the front step with somebody who I've never heard of, but when I crack it open, you know, it's like, it's changed my life and my thinking about it. Certainly Papert and Saracen and Reggio and a whole bunch of other people. I'm just wondering if there's anybody that you're reading now or that that uh maybe is is uh another another author another book that you think might uh might be something that would be worthwhile for all of us to to pay attention to or to Hmm. to just think about it at a deeper level um well a couple things one is i just put together an anthology an (laughs) e-book very very well produced e-book and a a lot Yeah. I've only got a few years left, Gary. I don't know if I can get through that one. But. <laughs> um, well, but the, right, right. the constraints of that task were things that were in the public domain. I'm reading a lot of open education stuff from the early 70s. I just keep finding more books. Um, I and you look, finding... you look for that old stuff more than the new stuff, I think, right? I mean, do you, oh, look, yeah, yeah, you have yeah. a bias You'll, for the new stuff? Yeah, I mean, I'll show, you, I'll show you the new stuff I like. Um, <laughs> there's there's a series of books that are quite lovely. There's a book called Choice Time, I think, by that Heinemann publishes. But there are these these lovely books called Loose Loose Parts. There's three of them about sort of just teaching with stuff. Um, I've I've been going back to some Lillian Katz early childhood stuff. The the work of Malaguzzi and Carlo Rinaldi and their Leila Gandini and their colleagues Reggio Emilia you could read for us for a lifetime and, right. and, and, and deal with the subtlety. And I mean, their memos, their newsletters, their throwaway stuff is profound. The, you know, their annual report, I, I'm not to send you a couple pages, of their annual report. You could just take the first two pages of their annual report and go, okay, everything we need to know about education is there. Um, I, I think there's a lot of interesting stuff around LC Stemma. The, the the youth orchestra program from Venezuela that's been spreading around the world yeah. um, where kids are part of something bigger than themselves and they're making music. Um, I, I'm increasingly trying to figure out a way to spend more time advocating for arts education. Um, you know, I see Charlottesville and guys, you know, you know, praising Hitler and carrying tiki torches. And I, I can't help but think to myself, I bet they weren't Tevya in West in, in Fiddler on the Roof in high school. <laughs> but there's a right, there's pretty good chance they weren't in Hello Dolly or um pretty or good. you know, weren't to play the blues or know who Horace Silver is or Polonius Monk or, or Bach or Berg or you know Verez. Um and you know, one of the things that that I that I think people get wrong about Seymour Papert is that there was no fiercer 
critic of schooling than Seymour. Yet all of his research was conducted in schools. And I'm a pretty good critic of school and schooling as well. And my own experience wasn't terrific. It was pretty, pretty horrific in a lot of ways. But the stuff that brings me the most joy and clarity and peace um, and purpose in my life are things that I learned in a public middle school. I learned to compose music and play the trumpet and, and program computers. And I'm incredibly grateful for that stuff. And I'll be goddamned if anyone deprives another generation of kids of those experiences. Hmm. You know, I, I, I like to say that, you know, school is an obligation to introduce children to things they don't yet know they love. And the continuation of our culture and learning what it is to be human and to love things and find beauty and, um, and is, is really, really, really important, along with the fact that apparently everyone needs a good seventh grade social studies teacher. Um, and uh, that's, that's stuff that I think about a lot. And, you know, you saw a quote from a, a video of the event I was at last week when a, a great 80-year-old pianist said, nothing needs to be taught, only experienced. Right. Um, yep. Yep. There are folks in every walk of life who understand Piaget. It's kind of like you hear, you go to Latin America or you go to Reggio Emilia and they say, we get John Dewey better than you get John Dewey. Mm, okay. um, and, and so people who are living these ideas of learning by, by doing, of, of valuing expertise, of, of understanding the importance of an aesthetic. Look, I was just in these schools in, in Toronto and, and I had to finally say to the audience, lovely teachers, and we did some great work together. Could this school be any bleaker? Could it be any uglier? Could it be any colder, any darker? The, the, the first thing I need to see when I walk in the front door is, is a flashing sign of the things I'm going to be punished for next to the 40-inch display listing other things that I might do wrong. Um, you remember, I mean, I remember there's a school of the future in Irvine, in Irvine, Texas, this beautiful piece of architecture that a lot of our friends worked in. And, you know, it was one of the first one-to-one schools in America. And, and the first thing you see when you walk in the front door is the truant officer's office. And it's like, this stuff matters. The, couldn't we get a, get a gallon of paint and let the kids paint the walls some color that, that didn't make them want to kill themselves? Or <laughs> could, could, couldn't we put some plants in a room or books or get some... You do, have a love, you do have a love affair with schools of the future. I know that. <laughs> I'm not, yeah, well, again, that's another piece of arrogance that I don't have that I don't have a lot of time for. Um, I don't know, unless you've been to the future, shut up. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, we got to spend this time together and we're in this place that, that, that just demeans and insults us and makes us uncomfortable. And I mean, I was in Italy last month and we were invited to a university to speak to pre-service teachers. And I walked into this building that looked and smelled like it was designed to manufacture toxic waste. And then we walked into the teacher education classroom where there were 500 teachers sitting in bleachers that were bolted to the floor. There was this much room between humans. There was this much room between rows. The benches were bolted to the floor. Um, and the first thing that happened was the department chair who was hosting us began the class by telling the students, your professor has been hit by a bus. But she'll be okay. She's going to live, but she won't be back this semester and someone else is going to teach the class. And Sylvia and I were looking out at this room full of prospective teachers and there was no reaction at all. Zero affect. 
There wasn't a single gasp or, or is she going to be okay? Can we make a card? Nothing. There was no relationship whatsoever between the teacher and the students. None, not, not, not even basic human empathy, nothing. And, um, and then it was my turn to speak. And we had a translator from the state department. And I said, it's great to be here. It's an honor to speak with you. I am thrilled that you want to be teachers. I can't imagine a more noble way to live one's life. But if you dare not teach a hell of a lot better than you were taught, I'm going to come to your house and kill you. <laughs> Partially, I wanted to test the, the, the translator. Um, but I was, again, working two audiences. I was working the student teachers who I was speaking to, who, by the way, were in hour four to six of their lectures. There was another one after us in that, that to, to call their education medieval would have been an insult to the Middle Ages. Um, but I was also working the faculty who know better. Yeah. We were an hour by train from Reggio Emilia. Educators spend millions of dollars a year flying there to learn about humane education. And, and yet, a gener generations of teachers are being prepared in this just awful fashion. Um, so, you know, people often have the misconception that I, that I like conflict. I despise conflict. I'm the world's worst negotiator. Um, even with street vendors, how much is this? 20 bucks. Okay, here's 20. I'm, 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 <laughs> if, if, you tell me, if you tell me it's two for 60, I'll give you 60. That's fine. Um, but, but if something needs to be said, then no one else will You're say it. Yeah, I'll do it. Yeah, well, that's that's probably a great line to 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 sort of wrap this discussion up, Gary. And I I know that both of us, and I'm sure everyone watching and those who are listening through the podcast, you know, walk away from here with so many ideas. I find it quite annoying when when I'm talking to you, like either in this environment or when you're you know, on the phone, you ring me up, and I'm going, "Hang on, he's throwing too many things at me. I I, I can't I can't." You know, keep a, a track of the... Wait till I learn to speak Italian. <laughs> <laughs> great. It's, 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 it's been a great discussion. Um, we, Will and I and everyone have learned a lot from you, as always. And those who want to learn more, who want to experience it firsthand, have got to get along to Constructing Modern Knowledge. Uh, the website's constructingmodernknowledge.com. It's in Manchester in July. If you want more information, either contact, contact Gary directly or, or come to Modern Learners. We'll give the information as well. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure, mate, to share this time with you. Well, thanks so much. And thanks for everything over the last almost 30 years. And we have, ten, we have educators from 10 countries already signed up for Constructing Modern Knowledge. So it's quite a diverse community as well. Thanks, Gary. Thanks, Gary. Thanks, Will. Thanks, Bruce. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Cheers. Thank you.